Hi, I'm Ant. And I'm Dave. You're listening to Managing in the Middle. A podcast about ways to make work suck less. Let's face it, being a manager is hard work. We'll gather new ideas and fresh perspectives on how to be a better boss. Stick around and hear practical advice on how to manage happier, more productive teams. When you're a shit-hot leader, it's a win for everyone. Correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking feedback today. We are. Super. How to give it, how to get it. Curious, when or which role that you've worked in have you actually gotten good feedback? (laughs) Received the feedback? Honestly, probably none. Mm. I don't know that I've ever received useful feedback in a role. It's usually after the role. So if you leave a team and then you talk to someone, they go, oh, yeah, this and this. You're like, well, you should have told me that at the time and let me think about that. Mm. It's feedback, in my experience, is always given too late. Just because when, when you're actually working with someone or you're reporting to someone, they're too stuck in the I don't want this person angry at me mode rather than be confrontational potentially, not knowing how you're going to take the feedback, they just don't give it. And, I mean, we talk about radical candor. That's like the one of the worst things you can do. Save it up, hold yeah. it up. Save it up or just don't give it. I also think if we're going into the radical candor writing, I can think of two of probably the closest, I guess, constructive feedback that I've had through managers. One was tough, a very tough person to please, but I think the feedback was generally good in terms of the craft and how to get better at it and what to do and that sort of thing. The other, there's a big ego trap. So in Radical Candor, they talk about ruinous empathy which is managers that just want to be your mate and want you to like them and they want to give you praise and you might deserve the praise, but also it's a pretty rocky road to go on, I think, because then you kind of don't get better either because you've, you've got a manager right. going, like, oh, what can I do better? Oh, no, you're, you're doing great. Everything you're doing is really great. And you're like, oh. Yeah, and this, okay. this is what happens to me if I was saying I, I just don't get that feedback because they just don't want to. They don't want there to be a confrontation or they don't they feel like if they cause a problem between you, if they lose your respect or you won't be on board with them. Mm. And yeah, and, and that's not just leaders either, it's teammates, everybody. That ruinous empathy quadrant, for want of a better word, everything should be in a quadrant somewhere, is <laughs> where most Life people are stuck. <laughs> That's where most people are stuck. And when, and when yeah. you take people through that concept of the four quadrants of radical candor, you can see their eyes light, light up when you talk about ruinous empathy because that's where they are. Okay, I'll stop you right there. For those at home, what are the four quadrants? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Uh-huh, so, I've put you on the spot. All good. The four quadrants, when you, we're talking about quadrants, we're talking about two axes. We're talking about how much you care personally versus how much you're willing to challenge someone directly. Most people care personally. They honestly care about you, but they're not willing to directly challenge you. 
they're scared that you'll stop being friends. So they they don't want to upset you because they empathize with you. So that is called the ruinous empathy quadrant. That's what we've been mm-hmm. talking about, right? Because you don't learn anything. You keep doing things that are less than optimal because no one will tell you. If they don't care about you and they don't want to directly challenge you, you've got quadrant that's labelled as uh, manipulative insincerity. So what they'll do is they'll say whatever it is you need to hear and then basically slam you behind your back. Uh, these, are, these are the termites, the white ants of your uh, organisation. The people that don't care personally but do directly challenge are, well, technically it's called obnoxious aggression. Informally, we know it as the asshole quadrant. Because, <laughs> That's our slang for it. Yeah, yeah. They come off as assholes. They will say what they call, think. They'll call you out and say, this is no good. Not because they care, but because, you know, they don't empathize with you. So they'll do it in front of people. They'll do it at inappropriate moments. They'll do it aggressively, potentially, which sounds horrible. But it is actually better than the other two because at least you're hearing it. Yeah. Feedback should be a gift. These people aren't giving you a gift. They are throwing it at you. In your face. Yeah. (laughs) So obviously the optimal place is when you do care personally and you're willing to challenge. And that's known as the radical candor. But also what I loved about that too is they're big on doing it right in the moment doing that if you if there's negative or constructive feedback or even really positive feedback or you did that really well and this is why of being super specific about what the behavior was and doing it right there as opposed to storing it up which is what I'm sure a lot of people can relate where you've gotten to a performance review and things have come out that you've never heard of before you've never been given that feedback you've never been told that they feel that way or yeah, it's a terrible waste. Uh, and also, you d- it's not a learning moment, is it? No. And, and the classic is they wait until you're in a confrontation and then say something like, you always do this, mm. but it's the first time you've heard about it. And because it's not specific, it's easy to argue. If someone says oh, you and always- it's easy to deny as well. Yeah. Someone says you always do this, you just say, well, no, I don't. And that's the end of your conversation. Now it's yes, it's no, yes, like marriage no, counseling one hundred and one. Oh, so, look, so much. Yes, you do. Of, no, you don't. <laughs> so much, so much of leadership, especially around feedback and helping people communicate, is exactly that. It's about coaching the relationship between the people. So you've got each individual in your team that you need to coach and help along, but the team itself has an identity unto itself. Right, that you know that there's a feel in a team. So you have to coach that as well. And that's the same with marriage. You have to coach the pair. You can't just coach one person. But anyway, we're talking about <laughs> That's another story for another day. Yeah, yeah let's 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 talk about my <laughs> fun with marriage counseling other times. The important thing is that radical candor gets the message across from a place of caring. The absolute classic, I think I generally illustrate this by imagining if you're standing in front of a group of people talking with your fly down. I love this one. 
right? The obnoxious aggression, the asshole is going to call out, hey, dickhead, he flies down. Now everyone's looking. The manipulative insincerity person is just nudging their neighbour, going, check out, his flies open, that's funny. <laughs> Ruinous empathy is refusing to look and too embarrassed to say anything. The person that cares and is able to be brave or challenged directly will come to you quietly or pass you a note or something saying, hey, your fly's open. They won't draw attention to it. They won't do any, but they will let you know. Something like that you can laugh off, but I think it illustrates how these people behave. Now, if you think about it seriously, most people sit in the ruinous empathy. They don't really want to be the one to go, hey, it flies down, because it's a bit embarrassing. You don't want to embarrass the person. Well, and I think also some people just don't feel like they're, they're able to confront or have the conversation. It takes a lot of guts. Yeah, it can. But again, you don't want to wait till feedback time, you know, the once a month or whatever, one-on-one, or worse, your annual performance review, to say, by the way, when you were talking to all the stakeholders back in January, your fly was down. Mm. It's probably not that useful. Yeah. Right. So this is where we come back to what you were saying in the moment. That's when it's the most useful. So why do we give feedback then, Dave? What's the value? The value of feedback isn't really for the person giving the feedback. Right? If you care personally about this person, you want them to do better. You want them to have all the information they need to make good decisions. So feedback isn't telling them to change what they're doing, right? That's mentoring or micromanaging at worst, right? What it is is saying, look, here's some information. Do with it what you will, but here's something I've noticed and here's the impact of it. You might want to think about whether that's the impact you're trying to have. Are you aware you're making this impact? Whatever. So if you care about them, you want them to have as much information. That's why it's a gift. You're giving them this information. If it also means that they perform better in their role, bonus. And ultimately, that's where companies see the value. Mm, I think it's really easy for managers to get caught up in, I need to give this feedback because I need to get this thing off my chest. If it's not for the person's benefit, it's not feedback. Right? I mean, often you'll see managers say, hey, I've got some feedback for you. You really need to stop doing this. That's not feedback. That's direction. And right? control. Yeah. And look, maybe it is a good idea. And maybe if you told them why, they choose to do that. But it's not feedback when it's handled that way. It's direction. So a lot of people could be super offended by that. Well, and, and that's the thing. That's, that's why people get stuck in ruinous empathy. They know that's a bitter pill and they know they would hate to swallow that bitter pill. So they feel they don't want to give it to someone because they're empathizing. You know, empathy is a good thing, but not if it means you can't have important conversations. And again, we get back to timeliness. I mean, we've mentioned timely, we've mentioned specific. Right. We've mentioned that it shouldn't be directive, so how do you do it? My favourite is the old 
SBI, which uh, is when you speak to someone, you say, this is the situation, this is the behavior, this is the impact. What they do about it, it's up to them. But you can walk out of a meeting and say, in that meeting, when you did this, it had this impact. And that's up to them to think about it. So long as you speak about behavior and not intent, there's no arguing with it either. If people want to be upset, there's nothing they can get upset about. The situation is clear. The behavior is a fact. You actually did this or you actually said this. And this is the impact it had on me. There's no arguing with any of that. Mm. If I go for intent and I say, in this situation, you were trying to do this, immediately I can turn around and say, no, I wasn't. That wasn't my intent. Therefore, your whole conversation dies. Mm. You need to say, forget their intent because you don't know their intent. This was your behavior. This was the impact. Do with it what you will. Some people say you should do situation behavior intent and an ask. Based on that, I would like this. Now, that's borderline for me, getting directive. Mm, yeah, I agree. If the, if the impact is they're upsetting other team members or something like that, then sure. Say, look, the impact is you're upsetting this, upsetting these people. The ask is we find another way to communicate that. Yeah, what can we do to change this? But, uh, yeah, it, it has to be. I keep going over the same thing because it, it really matters to me. If you don't tell them the exact behavior and the exact impact in a way that they cannot argue, it's just facts, then why would they listen? Yeah. On that, though, what do you think about, because there's, there's varying opinions around whether you should be speaking on behalf of other people. So with SBI, my understanding of that that technique, which is very handy also for those in long-term relationships, <laughs> uh, because, again, you say, when this happened, you did this thing and this is how I felt about it, which I think is makes a lot of sense when you're speaking from an I perspective. Mm-hmm. But when you're a manager and you've got several other people in the team or you're managing lots of other different stakeholders across the business, how do you feel about escalating that or providing that feedback when it's not necessarily your feedback? It might be something that's being told to you or it's a situation that's being escalated to you. I hate that word, but yeah, it's been escalated. <laughs> that, that's, that's a minefield, right? Because I, I, if you turn around and say, oh, when you did this, this person was impacted – the first thing they're going to do when they leave that conversation is go and talk to that person and go, what the fuck? Yeah. Were you really? Yeah. yeah. What do you mean? Exactly. How, do I do, yeah. how can I do that? So yeah. that's dangerous, right, for everybody involved. Plus, it also gives them deniability. This person felt like this. No, they didn't. I got nothing. No, they didn't. I just had a beer with him last night. Yep. And you got nothing. You got no argument for that. It's My your word fuck. against them, right? So yeah. you don't want to get into that situation. Ultimately, you want to have a culture of feedback within the team 
and and the key thing, one of the best things about feedback is it builds trust, right? Feedback, and I'm not talking about something's gone wrong. I'm talking about something's gone right. Yeah, you want to be saying, pointing out the things people have done really well seven times before you start dropping a bad one, right? Yeah. Every day you can provide feedback. It's not an issue. You will find something every day to say, hey, I really appreciate the way you did that. It made me feel X, right? That's all good. Once people get used to feedback, you can encourage the person that was impacted to have that discussion themselves. Yeah. You can even- But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. If they're not happy with it, then the next level would be you can facilitate a conversation between the two of them. Yeah. And that just provides some safety- but it does put the person receiving the feedback in a bad position relatively because they're getting it in front of the leader. Yeah. So at that straight away escalates the issue. So ultimately you want uh, it's to be one challenging because sometimes you'll have someone who consistently brings those things to your attention but will not be willing to go have that conversation with the person. Yeah. And that person, the person that comes to you, needs some coaching and some love around why they can't go to that person. What is it about that person that they feel they can't talk to them? Are they scared of them? Are they scared they're going to ruin their friendship? Is there no trust? There's an underlying problem that you can then work on with them. So in the short term, sure, you might have to bite the bullet and do things, you know, walk the minefield and do it for them. But long-term, you have to get that person to a place where they can feel com- comfortable giving and receiving feedback. And it starts with you, doesn't it? If, if you're consistently inviting feedback and pressing and asking the team for feedback, both in your one-on-ones or, you know, privately or whatever, and, yeah. and you show that you're also open to learn and grow, that's brave. Well, it's part of, part of leadership is modelling the behaviours you want. So every opportunity you get to give someone public feedback, do it. Like, Praise. Yeah. Praise in public all the time. Get them Criticize used. In, pri- in private. Yeah. <laughs> Just FYI. Yeah. So praise them in public a lot. And I'm not talking about the parenting trend that's caused every kid to get a friggin' trophy every time they get out of bed, it has to be sincere. Right? Mm. And if you pay attention, you will find so many opportunities. Uh, today, a couple of my team members were in a very challenging meeting and they often, they're very, very passionate about the product and they can often get passionate in meetings. They kept their calm. They were articulate. They were to the point. It was wonderful. As soon as the meeting finished, I called them up and thanked them and said I was how impressed I was with how they'd managed, you know, they'd kept their calm and things like that. And this is the little things. That's mm-hmm. now reinforced that behavior. So when the team are used to praising, getting praise from the leader, or receiving positive feedback, they'll start doing it to each other. That's a start. And then we can, if you give them 
proper corrective, potentially, feedback, however you want to call it, then they get used to the idea that it's not a bad thing, receiving this feedback. And I, I will actually take the whole team and spend maybe an hour, two hours, going through something like what we're talking about now. Why do you give feedback? Because you care about someone. It's a gift. It's about trust. It's about care. And help them get in a place where they're ready to receive feedback and ready to offer it based on the assumption the person knows it's a good thing. Mm. So there's a little bit of group training you can do as well. So you're telling me I can no longer give the shit sandwich? No. Shit sandwiches, it's a good idea, but it's unfortunately so overused, it gets to the point where if you give someone good feedback, they cringe waiting for the other shoe to drop. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait, there's bad coming. And especially some leaders do it so poorly. They go, I've got negative feedback to give. Shit. But I have to use I have to use the shit sandwich. Okay. Wow, I really liked your dress. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> also creepy at this, right? <laughs> and it's not sincere, right? If you have to wait until you've got bad potentially corrective, negative, whatever feedback to give positive feedback, mm-hmm. it's too late. You should have done it in the moment. If you have to make something up, it's obviously bullshit. Yeah. People have got such highly refined bullshit radars. As soon as you open your mouth and give them some vaguely faint praise, they know there's a bombshell coming. And they get defensive. We've spoken about the lizard brain, I think. Soon as you get defensive, you feel attacked, your brain shuts down, you get defensive, you fight or flight, you're not listening, you're not responding. So if you want them to actually hear what you've got to say, you have to stop them from being scared. This is a good thing. So, yeah, I I am yet to see shit sandwich used well. They still teach it, though. I know. It's sort of scary. They still love the shit sandwich. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> oh no it's probably tasty at some point but i like i said yeah it's probably a bit overdone now well i think what i really liked that we've gone through before is instead of the four stages of of uh of grief and denial and anger and stuff i know we've talked before about the levels of responsibility yeah, when did you first come across levels of responsibility? Ah, okay, so the responsibility process is um, it was a book written by Christopher Avery, and yeah, it's a good book, but even just a very small poster gives you a really great idea about how people react to basically negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Now, I love taking the teams through this, and I'll say, look, here's the ways you can react, and here's the impact of reacting that way. If you recognize it in yourself, now you know. So this is a self-awareness thing, not a you-should-do-it thing. If someone gives you some feedback, 
and you basically ignore the existence of it, understand you are in denial. Yeah. And in denial, nothing changes. Right? No one gets anything. And then I'll, I'll go through the different processes. I usually start at the bottom and head up. So you start with denial. Then there's laying blame. There's justifying. There's shame. There's quitting. There's obligation. And then finally, you take responsibility. Now, these are not stages you go through. These are certain ways you can react. It's not like you start in denial and then while you're thinking about it, you blame someone else and then you justify it. You might, but it's more likely that when you're confronted with something like this, you'll jump to one of them. Yeah, and everyone has a default setting. Yeah, I'm a, I don't see a lot of people in denial. I do see a lot of people in lay blame. Right now, for those playing at home, laying blame is when you hold others at fault for causing you to act a certain way. I wouldn't have punched him in the head if he hadn't threatened me like that. Well, that's a little severe. Well, and this is what I mean. It's not like they forced you to do it, right? You're suggesting they forced you to. No, you chose to act that way. And this is what the responsibility process is all about. Everything. I mean, justify and lay blame are obviously like very close cousins. Yes. Justify is to say, I was within my rights for behaving this way or doing the thing that I did because yeah. of it's, it's, a blaming. It's making an said. excuse. Laying blames basically making an excuse based on someone else, whereas justifying is making any excuse. I didn't have a choice. Now, the interesting thing about justify, lay blame and denial, well, not so much denial justify and lay blame, is you're saying, I have no power in this situation. It was out of my control. My actions were not my own. And mm. that's, that jars some people when they realise that blaming someone else or making excuses, basically you're saying, I have no power. I could not do anything about it. And no one likes that idea. No one likes the idea of being a pawn to circumstances. When they realize they have a choice how they react, regardless of the circumstances, then you start gathering your power. So shame is the next one we generally talk about. Shame but is the naughty puppy dog who just got told off for eating the shoes. Yeah. It's, you're still laying blame but you're laying blame on yourself. So again, you're saying, it's not my power. I am who I am. I can't change that. This is what happened. And that's rubbish. And what goes with it is obviously terrible guilt. Absolutely. Self-loathing. Yeah. And all the feels. All, all those joyous feels that you beat yourself up about. I am shit. I am not good enough. This is where the whole imposter syndrome, I think, loves to live as well. Yes and no. I think imposter syndrome is a different kettle of fish, although it does feel pretty similar. 
Yeah, I think they're friends for sure. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely um, the same. Because friend. I feel like people who are in shame mode can go straight to I'm not good enough for yeah. some reason, you know. I, th- I think imposter syndrome is almost assuming there will be shame. There's shame coming, so I'm just not going to bother. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of guilt. And some people like that, not because they like feeling guilty, but they figure if they beat themselves up hard enough, then they've done their penance and they can just mm. get on with their life. Rather yes, than the actually- Catholics listening. Just rather than take responsibility for their actions and actually have to do something about it, they go, well, it's easier just to beat myself up and move on. Yeah. So it's not always but- people thinking it's a bad thing. And then quit's an interesting one. Yeah. Well, quit's like a sideline. So it's the exit. It's the exit. It's you can't handle the guilt. You can't handle the shame. And you can't handle the obligation. So obligation is when you basically do what you have to do, not because you want to, but because you have to. Right? You haven't taken power. Again, you're doing what you're told. You're doing what you're forced to do. It's not within your power to change it. Now, if you can't handle that and you can't handle shame or the guilt or whatever, and you won't take responsibility, then sure, quit. Get the hell out of that situation. Again, you're not taking responsibility. You're getting out of the situation. So, yeah. And then, of course, you have the level where you actually take responsibility. You say, you know what, whatever it was that's gone wrong or right or whatever, I had my part to play in that. I'm going to own that and I'm going to think about it and change how I react or not change how I react or whatever it is I'm going to do. But it is within my power. So I find the whole responsibility process thing, or I found it very empowering. Mm. It, it points out there's all these reasons to not take responsibility, but they all are admitting you've got no power. Then there's take responsibility. Even if you are only partially involved, you are still partially responsible. What could you have done to make the situation different? Surely there's something. So it's, it's a great tool for thinking about feedback. So if people receive some feedback and they get defensive, we can start using this language that we've set up as a team and say, well, are you in denial now, do you think? Not not saying you are, but is this a reaction? Is this a denial reaction? And that gives them the opportunity to stop, take a breath, think, well, am I in denial or is this absolutely nothing to do with me? I think in high trust teams too, you can have those conversations and I've certainly been able to have some of those in the past in, in really good teams to be able to say, well, you know, how do you usually react to this? What's your kind of default setting? Yeah. Okay, well, you know, have you thought that maybe there's another angle to this or have you thought that maybe, you know, this person, you know, often switching perspectives is, is difficult but particularly where there's been feedback or there's been stakeholder issues or friction within a team or something like that. Say, all right, well, how about we could see it from their point of view and can you see how maybe that reaction to the feedback might not be 
as it was intended. A lot of people have received bad feedback. And so the very fact that you are giving them feedback will put them in on the defensive because they're going to feel attacked. Yeah. So it's, it's a process that you need to take not just a person, but usually a whole team through to say, you are going to get feedback. And when you do, it's not an attack. This is not about me. This is not about performance, potentially. This is not about whatever. This is about a gift that we give each other, we think is going to help. I mean, if, if you've got information that I don't have, then it's almost a responsibility to give it to me. How can I make proper decisions? How can I act appropriately if I don't have all the information? So this feedback is a gift. Give these people the information to allow them to make better choices. Well, more informed choices, if not, if not better. Ah, feedback, we love it. It is good. So long as, so long as you're consistently doing positive feedback, you're looking for opportunities to give positive feedback, then the negative or corrective or whatever you would want to call negative feedback, it does lose its sting. Yeah. And the other thing is you have to realize that sometimes someone's having a bad day. They're not up for it. I always try. Unless it, if it's going to be corrective, if it's going to be something that maybe needs addressing, then I will actually ask, do you have the time and are you okay with receiving some feedback? And it's absolutely okay. I will have set the scene before you know, in a meeting somewhere. It's okay to say no. You know what? I'm having a really bad day. I'm not going to handle your feedback well. Mm. Can we set up a time tomorrow? Right. So that I found is useful. If you're going to give them feedback, ask if they're up for it. If you're asking for feedback, people usually clam up. They panic. The, the tip I give everybody, and even though they know it's a trick, it still seems to work, is you don't ask <laughs> for feedback, you ask for advice. Do you have any advice for me about this situation? So obviously you're asking for feedback, but for some reason it's less threatening to say ask for oh. advice. Oh, that's the whole aim of the game. Yeah. So yeah, if, if you're starting a new team or you're taking over a team that has trust issues, absolutely. The uh, yeah, get your social contracts and all that sort of stuff, but don't forget about teaching them about feedback. Mm. And providing the forum and the space to do that again in a very safe, non-confrontational sort of way that people can get into. Yeah. So obviously, so- I'm sort of passionate about that. I I get pretty excited about feedback because it's so impactful. It is. And if nothing else, then you, you get that. And like going back to the start of the show, we're talking about, you know, sometimes the way it's delivered is not great if you're in the asshole quadrant, but you're getting the feedback. Yeah. Whereas the very worst you can do is shut your mouth and try and be everyone's best friend and not say anything. And then behind closed doors saying, oh, so-and-so in my team's no good or, you know, that, that's absolute white anting. Kim Scott. The author of Radical Candor, she has uh, she's done TED talks, um, at least at least one that I've seen, apart from other lectures, and it's maybe fifteen minutes, 
not even that, it is fascinating. And, I mean, read the book. It's a great book. But watch this YouTube of the TED Talk. It's, an, it's a real eye-slash-mind opener. Mm. Agree. We didn't go to one-on-ones today, but essentially this is this is the main kahuna as far as I'm concerned, is the feedback piece. And then the one-on-ones yeah. are really there, which we'll talk about at a later time, to, to grow and develop people. And they shouldn't be Ooh. the time where you run through whip and it shouldn't be the time where you pass on all the feedback that you've saved up over the last yeah. week, two weeks, three weeks. There's, there's a lot of research around that says during your one-on-one, you should not be providing feedback. You know, as we said, it's not timely, but that one-on-one is a great time to get feedback. What are the hopes? What are the dreams? How is that happening? How are you impacting that? So, yeah, we absolutely need to talk about one-on-ones. But if we're talking about giving feedback, one-on-ones is not the time. Mm. Absolutely. So, to summarise, <laughs> healthy teams need feedback. Healthy teams need feedback. Healthy teams need trust. And one leads to the other. It's got to start somewhere. So, it starts with the leader. Right? You have to be strong enough comfortable enough with yourself to know you're coming from a good place to give the people the positive and the negative feedback that they need to make better decisions or more informed decisions. And if you can set the scene ahead of time so that they're ready to receive it in the spirit in which it's given, then you're well on the way to having a high trust environment. The ultimate summary, check out the radical candor. Check out the responsibility process. Look up SBI and related feedback models and do not use the shit sandwich. Nice one. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you've thought of any burning questions or we've triggered something you'd like to discuss, hit us up on the socials. If you want more information, check the show notes. Everything's in there. Do us a favor. Tell your mates. We can help everyone.